Dartmouth Hitchcock Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on the diagnosis, management, and prevention of COVID-19 in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm one of your hosts, Amog Karnik. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mahafi Kamaragiri, Marshall Ward, and Jose Mercado. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the impact the pandemic has had on undergraduate medical education and how both the educators and the students have navigated this change. Over the past decade, the medical pedagogy has evolved into a model that balances in-person education with the learning tools rooted in technological advancement. We have seen a steady shift away from traditional lectures and more towards systems-based coursework, small group learning, and an early introduction to the clinical environment. The COVID-19 pandemic, however, disrupted this delicate balance, which has required significant adaptation by both professor and student. Our guest today is Dr. John Dick. John is a hospitalist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, an associate dean for clinical education since 2012 at the Geisel School of Medicine, and since January of 2020, he has also served in the role as Interim Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education. John, welcome to the podcast. Mahathi, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to the conversation. I've enjoyed listening to your previous podcasts, and I think we're taking a slightly different bent today. So I'm excited to talk about medical education, the impacts of COVID on it. Yeah, absolutely. Amog, how do you feel about getting us started? Absolutely. Let's do it. John, as fellow educators and lifelong students, we're super excited to have this conversation with you today. So let's dive straight in. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience as an educator at the start of the pandemic and when you started to implement changes for Geisel? Yeah, I came into my role as interim uh, senior associate dean for medical education, as Mahathi mentioned in in January. And gosh, I thought the biggest thing I was going to have to be dealing with was our LCME accreditation cycle, which is a big deal for medical schools. And I was already worried about that. And then in February, when we started getting these calls of this virus that was out there, and then seeing a case of it, right, and having a case of it here in our own institution and dealing with that in late February, really rocked my world as as much as everyone else's world and, and rocked the educational world as well. I think the immediate sort of impacts that we went through were what is this going to be? What is this going to mean for medical education? Is it going to go widespread? I think if you guys take yourself back to the beginning of even before it was a pandemic and we were hearing about the cases in China, and then we heard about a case in Washington, then there was that questionable case in uh, Northern New Hampshire of all places, as you might recall. And I think we were all waiting. It's just sort of seeing what's going to come. So at the start of it, it was a lot of not sure what's going to happen and actually hard to prepare just for the unknowns. John, so going into a little bit more detail from a Moog's question, can you highlight some of the changes that have happened in the delivery of both the preclinical and the clinical curriculum? Yeah, absolutely. It hit, I would say, our clinical curriculum first with our third year students who, as you three know, are around the country during their clerkships in California, locally, uh, all over the place. And the first calls actually that were coming from California saying we're you know, seeing increasing cases there, we're not quite sure, are we going to continue to be able to have your students here or not? 
we needed to think fairly quickly on, did we have places more locally that we could move those students to and still have them continue with their clinical curriculum? That was the initial thought. And then as things took off like wildfire, we then got to a point where we had to pull all students from all clinical rotations across the country. We were fortunate because the AAMC did come out in mid-March and made an announcement to all medical schools across the United States that their recommendation was to pull students from the clinical environment. As you recall, at that point, there's a real concern of whether we were gonna have adequate PPE for our providers to care for patients. There was also then concurrently the concern of our providers being taken away from education as they were focusing on the pandemic itself and would they actually have the time or bandwidth to oversee our learners and what would the safety of that be? So that's where it hit the clinical curriculum. We were fortunate. We were able to get our students back and pull them out and relatively quickly transition to what I guess I'll call a hybrid curriculum where our faculty were great in setting up uh, virtual clinical learning experiences for our students. There are a lot of products out there already that we were able to use. For example, you may have heard of aquifer cases or their virtual online cases that schools can subscribe to and have students do. So we're able to employ those for the weeks where the students were not able to be on service. In terms of the preclinical, we moved successively where we had our students and we got edicts, if you will, or suggestions from the college and from the state saying you can only have 50% of a students in a classroom that you would typically have there, right? So if we have a year one group that's 100 students, we were down to 50 students and trying to figure out, okay, do we invite half of the students one day, the other half of the students the next day? And we went through a couple of weeks of iterations of that and then fairly quickly got to no students in the classroom. And again, on that front, our, our faculty were really good working with our IT folks and our instructional designers of relatively quickly flipping the educational experience to remote learning experience. I think we'll probably get into it a little later. That's easy to do, right, when you've got large group lecture things. But as Mahathi mentioned in her introduction, our medical school, along with most in the country, have really moved away from large group sessions didactic that are not that interactive to a majority of small group interactive sessions. And that is more challenging in a remote environment. Wow, that definitely sounds like a massive undertaking. Uh, and I think you talked about it a little bit already, but did you have a frame of reference from other schools or national associations? Or was this more of a day-to-day -day calibration cooked from scratch? This was more of a day-to-day -day calibration cooked from scratch. And I think this is great with the people who come to medical school, as you guys know, because you all did. We're planners, right? And we like to plan out years in ahead and we delay gratification where we, we know this is the next step and this is the next step. So it's extremely unsettling for us when we're in medical school to have these uncertainties unfold upon us. Now, all of you are obviously practicing physicians. The reality is once we get into practicing medicine, it's all very gray and things change and we have to adapt very quickly. And so I will say actually going through medical training and eventually being a physician actually prepares us well for adapting quickly to these sorts of things. When we did reach out and we, I was on several sort of listservs and reaching out to uh, other program directors, school directors uh, that I know, there's also a national meeting of uh, senior associate deans that was meeting every work, sharing a lot of ideas, but there was no playbook for this. We were hopeful maybe the closest would probably be some of the medical schools that dealt with Katrina, the hurricane that happened, as well as in Puerto Rico uh, when they had their hurricanes come through there. 
But those schools literally shut down, didn't have anywhere to go. And, and at that time, actually, were shipping their students to other locations. So that was a little different. How do we move forward from here? How do you continue to adapt the curriculum to current issues in real time for the students? Yeah, what I spoke about was a little bit of what was happening during the midst of the beginning of the epidemic. And at that point, as I mentioned, our clinical students were not seeing patients. They were trying to do clinical learning activities from home as best as possible. And our preclinical students were doing all remote learning. The good news at this point is because of some of the adaptations we've been able to make, obviously in the clinical environment, being more secure with our PPE, having protocols that we've been able to show, keep our healthcare providers and learners safe when they're in the sort of clinical learning environment has enabled us to get our learners back into the learning environment. So that part's been really good. That's been, a, I will say, a somewhat easier adaptation. The challenge is that we still have a lot of our clinical sites that are not ready to take our students for various reasons. Some of our private practices have shut down or are doing much less in-person still. Some of our OB sites are still somewhat restricted in terms of comfort level with students being there. So we've had to reintroduce students in various clerkships at various rates. What it has meant for us and what's meant for other schools across the country is you may have an OB experience that you had hoped would be a six-week standard uh, clinical experience that is now three weeks. And so still looking for what can we do to get our students to meet the learning objectives of that clerkship with maybe half of the clinical time that they would have. So that's that adaptation there. The other adaptation then, I think that the good thing that has come out of this is we have learned to use our technology better. We did this a little bit before learning on Zoom, other formats, but I would say a lot of our instructors and our students have become expert at running small groups, facilitating and participating in small groups on in the Zoom setting. And I know you guys have been participating in some of that. And sometimes it's actually preferable to do it that way. I'll speak about myself. I was the student who never raised my hand in class. I was pretty nervous. I don't like speaking in front of large groups. But if I had a chat function, I probably would have been chatting away and people would have known, hey, okay, John, he's gone awry here or he does know something as opposed to why is he just sitting back there and not saying anything. With all this in mind and reflecting back about the uh, curricular challenges that you faced at the beginning of the pandemic, going through the pandemic, can you perhaps uh, tell us a little bit about some ways that this has been perhaps an impetus for some necessary changes? Yeah, thanks, Marshall. That's a great question. And I think about this in a couple of different ways. When we're thinking about medical education for medical students or residents, wherever else, right, we are asking a lot of the time of our busy clinicians to participate in that medical education. It is hard when you're a busy clinician to take a break from your clinical practice, transport yourself to a live in-person setting that may be across campus, it may be a different campus. The time that takes up is actually a real challenge. Here at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock and Geisel, our, our, a lot of our campuses are separated. As, and so that can be an hour out of your day just traveling to go teach a small group and not even just talking about the small group itself, which may be an hour long. So I think an advantage here is what we're probably going to be seeing is more virtual interactivity, remote learning, remote sessions for things that can be done pedagogically that way. And so Marshall, I think it's going to increase the number of faculty members who can feel comfortable and are therefore willing to participate in medical education going forward. So I'm very encouraged about that. 
this forced us to think about how we could quickly come up with new electives to meet our student needs. That was also very exciting. We had faculties very quickly come up with ideas that they had that had probably been brewing for a while and now have this opportunity to say, listen, you can do this sort of virtual learning experience for students. And it made it much easier for them to do that. So we had a whole handful of new electives that we were able to develop at that time. So that was uh, encouraging as well. Other sorts of things, pedagogy. I think the one thing we have learned is there certainly are aspects of what we do, and this will come as no surprise to all of you, they have to be in person. We are doctors. We, we interact with people in, in person. We work in teams. And I think the one area of the small groups in the teamsmanship and the teamwork, it is hard to replicate that in a virtual setting. And so thinking about what is most important to have in person and really focusing on that. So I think it's honed us in saying, these are the important skills. This is the reason why we do these things in person. These are the reasons why we could do these things in another pedagogy or another format. I think the other big thing that I, I like to get into is we're talking about a pandemic and the health effects of the pandemic and some of the challenges on us and educators and the learners. What this really did, though, is it opened our eyes to the public health issues, the health disparities and discrepancies that already existed in our country. I would say here at Geisel, we have a fairly robust educational program that talks about social drivers of health, healthcare systems. And yet, I think it just became glaringly clear to us that our country, our own systems locally, were not equipped to deal with something like this and, and drove out in ways that we hadn't fully seen before the challenges that certain populations deal with in real ways right in front of our face. At Geisel, we have, we're lucky to have a very diverse student population. I will say we, we don't have as diverse a faculty. And I think our students were really good about pulling out the issues that came across in this pandemic of some of the ethnic and racial health disparities in asking us as faculty members to do a better job of addressing that in their education and addressing it in our own practices. So that's been a massive push. Some of you have participated in that, and I really appreciate that. But it has led to investment in time and investment in resources and money and outside resources to think about our own curriculum, to think about our own system on how we do a better job educating ourselves and our students in those areas. Thanks for sharing that with us, John. I'd like to shift gears just a little bit and take a moment to narrow our focus onto the students who are on the receiving end of these changes. So, Med school already taxes most of our physical and psychological faculties on a good day. What do you think the non-curricular impact has been on our Geisel students beyond the classroom? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's actually what keeps me up at nighttime. Our students are smart, right? And the type of learners who come to medical school, they can figure out how to learn what they need to learn with fairly minimal resources. But when we talk about the extracurricular, the non-curricular, all those other pieces that are really important part of learning in medical school, that's what I'm most worried about. And I think that's what our students are worried about. If I think about our preclinical students, and you're coming from all over the country, and in fact, the world for our medical school, and you're showing up, and I'm thinking of them showing up in end of July of this year, they can't see each other. They are spending the vast majority of their time in their small apartment. And some of them, it's a bedroom and a kitchen. We've all been there. <laughs> We've been medical students. 
And to have an existence that is that, away from family, away from friends, trying to get integrated into a new community is really challenging. And as, as hard as we try, I think that's the thing that we're probably never going to be able to do what we really need to do for these students to get them integrated into the community. And that has mental health effects. I've heard from our students, I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling isolated. We've heard this from our colleagues, right? We've heard this from our own family members. I feel fortunate. I, I live here with my family. So when I feel that way, I have my family I can relate to, or I have you, my colleagues. I, I worry about my students a lot in that area. Learning, as you guys know, it's not just the intellectual aspect. It's the social aspect. It's the psychological aspect. And we don't need to be our best at each of those things at all times to learn, but we certainly need to have those areas met adequately to learn. And so I do worry about that in our students. I worry for some of our students then in the clinical world who have more limited opportunities. And this is a double-edged sword. I can reflect and I think in speaking and knowing each of you, we probably in our fourth year were able to travel and do auditioning internships or away electives. And that was really important for us. It was really important for me to go see another program, another country, another part of the um, you know, country that I was interested in. And our students don't have that opportunity now. So I'm thinking my students right now who are applying to programs across the country or students who are applying here to try to get a sense of a place virtually is really difficult. Thinking about, okay, I'm going to need to commit to a spot that I've never been to. And if I'm going into medicine, that's a minimum of three years. If I'm going to surgery, maybe that's five, seven years I'm committing to. I think that's a real challenge. Sort of building on that, do we have any safeguards that are being put into place, specifically thinking about helping students navigate through this sort of unprecedented crisis on so many fronts? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because that, that really is our job. We are responsible for these students' health, mental health, and education. And yeah, they're adults and they're in graduate school, but there are students and, and, and we, we, we feel that responsibility for them. In terms of health, it's all the same things. When we pulled our clinical students and our preclinical, I should say our preclinical students, they do on doctoring, which is our clinical skills course that brings them to the hospital. That was for, in large part, for their health too. We weren't sure, was it going to be safe to have our students interacting in clinical environments before we knew what PPE was going to be? So we needed to make sure that our clinics and our hospitals had adequate PPE for our students. We had our students go through the same training of PPE donning and doffing that we all had to do before we allowed them back into the clinics. And so if we talk about the immediate sort of medical health, we have that there. Mental health, big deal. You guys know that uh, as physicians, we have higher rates of depression. You guys know as medical students, higher rates of depression, alcohol use, and unfortunately suicide. We had invested prior to actually about three months prior to the onset of the pandemic into a essentially free psychological health system program for our medical students, particularly our students who are traveling at that point across the country and had a hard time sort of making appointments with folks. We have a, it's a Geisel counseling service. They have actually to this point serviced about a third of our medical students have used those services. It's a really phenomenal thing. We've been able to invest more over the course of the pandemic to have increased time and support for the providers who do that. So that's been a big deal uh, in terms of the mental health for our students. And finally, wellness, 
right? How do we help students be well during a really difficult time for this? Gosh, I find that hard, right? I find that really hard. Our student affairs office is working really hard on coming up with wellness activities that can be done virtually or can be done safely in the parameters in which we're dealing. We were able to host some apple picking events, these sorts of things that get students out of their apartments and do get them to safely interact with each other. So when we're thinking about health, it's all those aspects. Awesome. Thanks for that. Just branching off of what you said earlier, uh, you mentioned how students were pulled from clinical activities earlier in the spring. And then I also remember reading about a a handful of medical schools that graduated students early, especially looking into the the late summer, the June, July timeframe to have students play a role on the wards. In your unique position as being a clinician, but also being someone who is actively involved in these types of decisions, do, do you think students have a role to play in taking care of patients during this pandemic? Yeah, they definitely have a role to play, and particularly our third and fourth year students who have a bit more experience than our preclinical students. And our students were knocking out the door, knocking down the door to try to get back into the clinic. Like they hated being outside of patient care and doing things virtually, and I hated it for them. And as other schools across the country, as you, you're probably maybe referring to some schools in New York that were able to graduate their students early and get them into direct patient care a little sooner, we did start exploring those opportunities for our students. What we came to find out, however, is the programs that did that tended to graduate their students and keep them at their own institutions and use them right there. So the students knew what they were getting into. They knew the students they were getting, and there wasn't going to be a big transition of having to teach the students the systems that they were coming into. And that was an issue. We did call out to various programs where we knew our students had applied to and then had matched to, because remember, match day occurred during the pandemic. And they said, listen, right now, we'd actually prefer not to take on someone brand new to our system. We worry that actually is going to create more bandwidth for, sorry, less bandwidth for us to get them up to speed and could be risky for them for the patients and for themselves. And then here at DH, we had similar conversations with our DH folks. They also preferred that our students finish up their medical education on time. And as our needs were not as high as those in New York, Austin at the time. Our students were amazing in other ways. In volunteering, you may or may not know this, they set up a babysitting service for faculty members who were gonna have issues because as you recall, a lot of daycare centers shut down at the time. And so the students jumped on that opportunity, which was really amazing of them. It's not what they went to medical school for, to babysit. This wasn't just pediatricians, this was everybody. It's like, how can we help out? They uh, delivered food. And amazingly for the flu vaccination clinics that occurred this fall, We had, I think it was almost 70 students participate in that and vaccinated over a thousand of our community members for influenza. So they were really reaching out to see what they could do in any way possible. Yeah, John, that's really amazing to hear. Looking at all of this from a bird's eye perspective between curriculum and extracurricular developments at Geisel this year, since the timeline of this pandemic continues to be a moving target, Do you foresee a time when we're going to return to what was previously our normal in education, or do you think that this has had transformative effects in terms of how we're going to deliver medical curriculum moving forward? 
Yeah, that's the big question. That's, I think, a really exciting question. So thanks, Mahathi, for asking that. This gets discussed a lot at the, the national level and the local level. We've gone through pandemics in the past. From our reading and from what we know, they have changed things dramatically in systems, in, in medical education systems. So in 1917, there were massive changes that came after that. So what would potentially be the changes that come from this I think there are a couple of things. One that I'm really excited about, as we've been in a model and still are in a model with very time-based medical education, you will go to medical school for four years. You will do the preclinical over one to two years. You will do two years of clinical and magically you will be ready to enter residency. We've known for a while that's, that's baloney. We all progress at very different rates than each other. Some of us are super fast and sharp, possibly the three or four of you. Other of us, of us take a little bit more time to get to where we need to go and the competencies that we need to achieve. This has really allowed us to think about at the individual student level, when have they met the competency? When can they move on next? How many weeks of internal medicine clerkship do they actually need? Uh, Dr. Ward runs our uh, sub-internship. Do they need four weeks of sub-internship or might they meet the competencies of that over three weeks? Or on the flip side, might we have a student that needs six weeks? And this has really forced us to explore that further and allowed us to explore that further in ways that people were not comfortable doing before. So I think that's one potential thing that can come out of this and push us in that direction. And in part because space may still be limited to some degree, and in part because the students have had a disrupted learning environment prior to this point, there may be some that are way behind on certain aspects and others that are not. And if we can help them and do more of a time variable as opposed to fixed time, I think that'd be a big outcome. Grading and assessment. I, over the short term of my career, have very much soured on grading. I think it, it drives the wrong approach to learning from our students. I think as faculty members, it's really hard for me to say, oh yeah, this is definitely an honor student versus a high pass student. I think we're much better at saying, I'm confident the student can do this, or I think this is a passing student has met competencies or not. We've been fortunate at Geisel, and I will say the majority of other medical schools moved to pass-fail environments during COVID, in part because they, one, felt like maybe they couldn't fully assess students, but also, like me, I think the majority were waiting for an opportunity to move to a, a pass-fail system that we all think will help our students actually be more motivated to learn and focus on what they need to learn, as opposed to doing things for the grade. So those are two sort of concrete things, Mojave. And then the third piece, oh, and I say this, I struggle with this a little bit. There's always so much more to learn in medicine. And I would say as doctors, we're always asked to take on more and more and never less and less, right? So there's no excrement system in medical education. There's only ingestion and more. But I do think we all need to be better educated in public health and population health and thinking about community health. 
and all of you on here on this call, you're leaders. And, and for the most part, all physicians are going to be leaders. And we need to take on that leadership role and really think about more than just the patient in front of us. And yes, that is primary. That is super important. But we need to think about the populations that we deal with and have the tools to understand how we can best bring them the best care. So I think, and I will say, I know our own institution is putting a lot more emphasis on systems-based learning, population health, social determinants of health, or in fact, as a student just recently informed me, determinant is actually not a great term. It's probably a, a more really social influencer of health or driver of health. So those are three areas that I'm looking forward to. John, this has certainly been a journey for Geisel students and medical schools all over the country and globe. So thank you so much for, for being here today to sharing these experiences, uh, your experiences with us uh, and our audience and giving us a glimpse of what's happening behind the scenes. Do you have any final pearls or pieces of wisdom that you'd like to share with us as we look ahead? Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for the invitation to be here. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you guys over the past little bit. And I appreciate you having this as a topic on your, on your podcast. Pearls, I'm probably not old enough to have pearls, but I think for all of us that work with learners, being very mindful that this is much more than an intellectual activity that we're doing. This is not me passing on knowledge to you, you passing on knowledge to your students. We are dealing with human beings who are going through difficulties, the same difficulties, if not worse than we are all going through. And I've learned again in my relatively short career as a medical educator, really trying to think about who is that individual in front of me as a person? What's potentially going on in their life? How can I help them not only learn the material, but feel comfortable and if not happy, feel satisfied in, in the path that they're following. And so my pearl would be for all of us to pause and think about those learners in front of us as, as human beings that have families, maybe families who lost jobs, who have you know their own health issues. We've got students who are immunocompromised that are dreading being back in the clinical environment. Students with, with, with lives that are far more than just the medical education piece that we do. So that's a major pearl. And then the other piece is the adaptability that we all have as physicians that we've learned to have we've shown that we can harness that and we can continue to harness that. And we shouldn't be afraid to change things. Medical education, the medical systems we're in, they are slow to change. They are frustrating at times, godly frustrating for us. And yet I think this pandemic has shown that we can change things quickly. And so a, a pearl to all of us is just being very mindful of actually change when necessary can, can actually happen on a relatively quick time frame. Again, thanks so much uh, for inviting me to your, your podcast. I, I really enjoyed the first several episodes. I'm honored to be here, and I, I really appreciate the time. Awesome. Thank you. So we heard today from Dr. John Dick. John, like so many educators, continues to navigate this tumultuous pandemic landscape. Under this immense strain, we've heard how schools and learners have piloted new learning platforms and have adjusted their curriculum and continue to look ahead to what looks like a new era of medical education. 
an era that will likely revolutionize how we teach the individual student and maintain adaptability to the changes that anything in the future might hold. As for what that future might look like, well, we will need to stay tuned and watch closely. Thanks for joining us today. This episode was directed by Mahathi Kumaragiri and was produced by me, Amog Karnik. We'd like to extend a very special thank you to Dr. John Dick for joining us today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.